0: It's equal parts innocent, you know, the way they're stylized and drawn is very innocent and sweet, but then you got those giant hairy creatures with the huge fangs and claws. It's like this marriage of all that is sort of sweet and innocent about comics and animation and then all of the dark side of that as well.
1: The book always feels like the gift that keeps on giving, the perfect book to review during this quarantine holiday season. Merry Christmas, everybody.
2: Merry Christmas. I mean, the impending doom and plague of locusts does feel familiar this time of year.
1: So there were once these three cousins who done got run out of town. One was the con man, the other a
2: doofus, and the
1: third a journeyman.
2: Sounds almost like our podcast. (laughs) Which one are you? I'll be the doofus, man. That's believable. Yeah. So these
1: three cousins, they descended into a valley. They found themselves a friendly great red dragon, a talking bug and a beautiful young woman who could walk between her dreams.
2: Sounds like our podcast, except when we consume a few edibles.
1: I'm Roman Segal. (laughs) I'm Ryan Joe, And we are two adorable cartoon characters who are wandering through an idyllic valley reminiscent of simpler times.
2: Oh, we're cartoons. I don't know if we're adorable, but definitely we are wandering through that idyllic valley.
1: It's more like a Jim Lee comic book. This week we're talking about one of my all-time favorite cartoon epics, Bone, by Jeff Smith. Bone was the indie comic starling of the 90s, released sporadically over 55 black and white issues from 1991 to 2004. It tells the story of the adorable phone bone who just wants people to
2: understand what a masterpiece Moby Dick is. I could tell you something about Moby Dick. It was like the Jaws of the 1800s. Fun fact. Uh, that sounds about right.
1: It also features Funtiful P. Bone, a.k.a. Phony Bone, who's a con man, con bone, who's always on the grift. And lastly, Smiley Bone, the doofus, the slapsticky, happy-go-lucky one. And when our story begins, the three cousins have been run out of Boneville for one of Phony's many shenanigans. The three find themselves in a scenic valley where things are not what they seem. There's rat creatures, a great cow race, and so much more. With the supporting cast, the beautiful Thorn, the persnickety Grandma Ben, and the righteous Lucius, all of whose mysterious pasts unravel into an expansively epic story. You're never sure where things are going to go. Now, honestly, Bone has been one of my favorite comic stories over the years. And since its subsequent re-release in color, by Scholastic. I actually find myself picking it up at library book sales, recommending it to friends who want to break out of the superhero genre, but also buying copies for all of my friends'
2: kids. You're like the Jeffrey Epstein of comic books. Wait a minute, your script said Johnny Appleseed. I meant Johnny Appleseed of comic books. And since the book always feels like the gift that keeps on
1: giving, this felt like the perfect book to review during this quarantine holiday season. Merry Christmas, everybody.
2: Merry Christmas. I mean, the impending doom and plague of locusts does feel familiar this time of year. It is 2020. So anyway, joining
1: us this week beyond a plague of locusts is my personal friend of the pod and host of the Distiller podcast, Brandon Dawson. Brandon, welcome to Quarantine Comics.
0: Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited
1: to talk about this. So, if our intro didn't already put enough pressure on you to perform, before <laughs> we get into Bone, we'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Who the hell are you? And more importantly, what kind of stories and writings do you enjoy?
0: Who am I? God, I wish I knew. Maybe this discussion will. Help Who are any of us, out. Brandon? Yeah. No, let's see. I've got a a long career in broadcasting and marketing. I was in radio for a long time. These days, I do marketing type of work. And I wouldn't say I'm a huge comic book enthusiast. I've read a few longer form comics and graphic novels over the years, probably the usual suspects, The Crow and Watchmen and stuff like that. But my literary tastes tend toward fiction and you know, Salman Rushdie and Stephen King and stuff like that. I loved this one. I really enjoyed reading it. So I'm excited to be here and to talk to you guys about it.
2: Salman Rushdie and Stephen King, that kind of leads me to think that you typically like to read like darker stuff, right?
0: Yeah, I like stuff both in books and music, stuff that gets at the darker questions of who people are and what the world is and deals with that and kind of wrestles with it. So, and Bone does that. I liked finding that stuff in there as well.
1: Yeah, I don't want to say it's a dark story, but it is surprisingly dark. It is. So, Brandon, when we were talking about something else, podcast or whatever the hell we do when we catch up on Zoom, you mentioned that you had bought this for your son years ago.
0: Well, I I didn't buy it. My wife did. Before she and I were married, when she and I were first dating, she bought this as a Christmas present for my oldest son. And at the time, I think he was 13. He's 18 now. And she bought it for him. I had never heard of it at that point. And we were in Athens, Georgia. And she found it in a comic book store there and bought it for him. And he read it. I mean, he's a voracious reader anyway, and mostly reads fantasy type stuff. But I mean, I think he read it in like two days.
2: Why did she choose Bones? Was there something about it that just drew her to it?
0: I honestly, I think she had just heard of it. Of all the things that she had to choose from, I think it was the one on the shelf that she was aware of and had heard good things. I think it looked, you know, it's you just look at the cover. I've got it sitting right here on my desk. It's equal parts innocent. You know, the Bone characters, the way they're stylized and drawn is very innocent and sweet, but then you got those giant hairy creatures with the huge fangs and claws. It's like this marriage of all that is sort of sweet and innocent about comics and animation. And then all of the dark side of that as well. And I think she, she just thought it was something that he would grab hold of. And he did. He, he, he finished it. We couldn't believe he was done with it.
1: Yeah. It's almost like, I hate to use this term because it's an existing one now, but like a Disney plus mm-hmm. there's an innocence about it, but you know, all the old Disney animations have a dark edge to, why the characters are in the moment they're in, you know, if the parents die or something like that. I, I bought the box set on eBay for my nephew, who I guess was eight or nine last year. And interestingly enough, my sister, I was asking her what I should get my nephew for Christmas this year. And now I'm buying him comics. But she was like, yeah, he researched online and found out there were prequels to Bone and wants hmm. Uncle Roman to buy them for him. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, it's funny, like, other than the first time I read it, I really hadn't reread it until now, but I've always been literally like picking up used copies of it left and right because I have so many friends with kids that it's just such a good entry point, I think, for kids into the medium that isn't Superman, that isn't Batman, and they Mm -hmm. already have this like high awareness of them. But if there's ever a book where I want to demonstrate to someone prior to this podcast that comics aren't about superheroes and they can be great, it's this one. And since doing this podcast with Ryan, I've discovered a lot more of those. But this is almost like the Bible of non superhero comics for me, and it's as thick as mm. it too. Jeez. Yeah. So Ryan, I gotta ask. This I think this was your first time with Bone. What'd you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Jeff Smith is been really on my childhood. <laughs> I have this, I Brandon, I have this like reputation of shitting on literally every book that we review, <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, that's the expectation here. But Jeff Smith, he's probably one of the best cartoonists out there he makes it seem so effortless but there's something so cinematic about the storytelling here it's just riveting almost to read because of how cinematic it is and i also like midway through the darkening of bone how it kind of starts out looking almost sort of like a disney cartoon Or a Mm -hmm. Disney comic, you know, with the three Bone cousins talking in the desert about some weird antic that they'd been involved in. And then at the end, when Bone and Thorn have been just like brutalized by the guards and Thorn has been impaled, Bone, his face is all mashed up. And I was just thinking of how that is such a juxtaposition, that slow shift into darkness and more adult subject matter
0: yeah and I don't know how common it is because I'm not a regular comic book reader, but I think just in terms of the the visual style of it, so much of it is so well drawn. I mean, the drawings of the characters like Lucius and Grandma Rose and Thorne are really well developed. Whereas the Bone characters, it's this juxtaposition of almost these two completely different styles of illustration where they're so simplistic and so rounded out. And the way that those exist in the same world somehow is really interesting to me and kind of like lends itself to that story and to the darker and lighter. And even the way that Phony through the whole story never connects with the narrative. It's like he just lives in the cartoon world. And is always about like, I just want to go home. I'm not even recognizing that everything that's at stake here. I just want to make my millions and go home. And it's almost like the veil is never pulled back from him about the darkness. And I just found it really interesting the way that's sort of, I'm looking through it now, flipping through it and just the style of the illustration through the whole thing and the way that they remain so simplistically drawn while everything around them. I mean, if you look at some of those like large-scale battle scenes, they look like stuff out of the Lord of the Rings movies or something. Like Or even
1: some of the last pages where it's just yeah. like the cover and some of the editions, these cartoony characters on the cinematic backdrop, this yeah.
0: Yeah. epic landscape. Yeah. And
1: I feel it's a frustration <clears throat> I have with Jeff Smith, though. He did it so well, and he almost typecast himself. So a few years after Bone, he wrote another book called Rassle, which I got from the library I read. And his style didn't lend itself to this kind of like grittier storytelling. It wasn't bad, to be clear. It was intriguing. It was interesting. But I knew what I wanted out of Jeff Smith from having seen it. And the, the closest allegory I've been thinking about it since I finished reading it again this week is the the artists and writers who do the cartoon Avatar The Last Airbender. Then they've done The Legend of Korra. and Now they have The Dragon Prince on netflix and it's they have a style they have a flair it's not the same story over and over again but they clearly have a style and uh, a reputation to kind of stick with and i want jeff smith to create new worlds like this i want to go to worlds like this with jeff smith over and over again and he hasn't brought it back in fact the only time i think he went and tried to create something else it didn't meet the the measure that was bone and Mm -hmm. it's it's like bone was so good and it's something I was, I was reading. He's been working on this since he was a child. He obviously started while he was at Ohio State and some college zines with stories about Thorne, but I don't know. It's like, I don't want him to, I don't need a bone sequel and there, there have been prose ones, but I I need more of this style of storytelling from him. you mean compared to the stuff like Russell that he's been doing instead of... Yeah, it's just it's similar to kind of what Brandon was saying. It's like the, it threads the needle of kind of dark, epic, I don't want to say Lord of the Rings esque because you know it's not as convoluted a story as that. But with simplistic innocence, if anything, I think the innocence is what brings you in, yeah. and the fucked up roller coaster shit that happens at the end is kind of what makes hit stick the landing. I like that it's a descent. And not again, when I say this, it's almost like, hey, kids, don't read this book. But there is a descent into darkness. Thorn can't sleep. To your point, these people get brutalized. Yeah, there's a lot at stake. Exactly. There is a lot at stake. It is kind of end of the world stuff with the ghost circles. Innocent lives have been lost. There is a bit of a reset button at the end. And I don't know if you know this, the last panel of the of the entire story is the first panel that Jeff Smith actually drew. No, I'm looking at No,
2: No, kidding. Wait, hold on. Now I want to check it out. You're going to have to edit this part out, Raman, as we all sh- shuffle through <laughs> our books. Like, wait, really?
0: The, the one of Tanail's sculpture in the Queen's Square or the one of them? Of them
2: riding
1: off into the sun. Right, right, right.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's interesting. He came to the end of it before he knew what the big eating and all the middle was.
1: And we were texting about that, Ryan. It didn't feel like he was making it up as he went along, but it kind of did at the same time.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it did. And I'm not sure it just felt like it did because in the first episode, just random things seem to happen, right? The stuff out of a regular cartoon where for no reason, a plague of locusts just comes and sweeps you off your feet. And then once he landed in the valley, he just meets a succession of quirky characters who seem to have nothing to do with each other and then as the story progresses you realize all of these things that he introduced in the beginning almost seemingly at random with stuff that actually is all deeply integrated with each other the locust is actually the chief bad guy for instance the bug that he meets early on who seems like just a wacky side character comes back and plays a much more major role right. during the darker stuff so yeah, i was trying to figure out okay jeff smith just like i'm gonna make all this shit up And then later on, he just figured out how to stitch it all together, which I think is an amazing thing, if if that was the case. Or did he actually have this whole thing mapped out, and as he was purposefully introducing each aspect in the early... Dropping breadcrumbs, yeah. Yeah, so, which also would be really, really amazing. I guess it's just about, like, his creation process early on, when he was setting up the story. Did he know he was doing it at the time? So that's what I was really curious about. Yeah, I can go either way with it. I
1: do think... It's either really good improv or he literally has the threads written on his wall. And I kind of don't care either way because the thing that hooked me, as with most of the books we read, is I just fell in love with the characters. It's obvious that the one person, actually, I would say there are two people you fall in love with Phone and Phoney, right? Because Phone has, he's the relatable one, but Phoney is the one that has the most character development, I would argue. The other thing that I really appreciated was not so much the love story between phone and thorn but the fondness and the bond and they walk away from each other they just go through this massive crisis and he's like well i still have to go home that's my family my people etc and it's just the character drama all of the epicness all of the interwoven threads i think wouldn't have worked if i didn't really care about these people
2: they're all extremely distinct personalities at the end you can kind of without even looking at it figure out who's talking. Their motivations are all always very, very clear. Even Grandma Ben, when you first meet her, she seems kind of like this simple, always smiling woman. And then you kind of start to reveal more and more about who she is and what's driving her. And it just creates these hidden levels of depth to some of these characters who initially start out as just cartoons. And Jeff Smith is so good at just exposing that over time.
0: Yeah, none of them are simplistic. None of the elements are simplistic or formulaic. You talked about the relationship story between Thorn and Phone. Like, that could have gone in any number of very specific formulaic directions, but it's nuanced all the way through and follows her character, which the way that she goes back and forth overall in terms of darkness and light and what she's attracted to and her duty, right? Yeah. But then also just the way that she's occasionally out of nowhere, completely overcome physically with something that draws her. All of it is really unpredictable. And there could have been an unbelievable love story between the two of them. There could have been the opposite, which would just be like, she just rejects him because he's Something that she doesn't even understand, but the way the story is actually told is a lot more engaging than any of that.
2: So, if there was a love story between Thorn and Bone, I feel like that would just be more disturbing and would probably turn off a lot of people because. <laughs> but
0: no, but I think uh, you're right. If it had been simple that way, but I think that the way that he tells it with nuance, by the end of the book, you believe that if there had been one, you would have bought it. Whereas if it had just been straightforward, like they fall in love, you're like, oh, come on. But like the relationship that he builds and the complexity of the relationship gets you to the point where when he turns away from her and when he goes home, you're genuinely sad about that. You genuinely have the sense of this missed opportunity of that. They obviously love each other. They care for each other deeply. Maybe it's at that point strictly platonic, but There's a couple of times in the second half where he throws off a line about in some way saying that both betraying the depth of his feeling for her, but also letting her off the hook. And she calls him on it. And I'm not remembering the specific instance right now, but it's like she says, like, why would that be so crazy? And the way that he tiptoes around that creates an authenticity to it that by the end, you believe that there could have actually been something there that if he had just straight out written it in, you never would have bought it.
2: Mm, That's a great point.
1: While I don't know or care who the book was written for, knowing that I've given this book to many children, nephews, friends, sons, and daughters, the kind of love and affection that Bone has, especially in the cartoony first half where he's like writing Mm -hmm. love poems for her, it is that kind of childhood infatuation with the pretty older girl, right? But again, when shit hits the fan and they are in war together, or she is literally going through psychic trauma from Mm -hmm. not being able to sleep and all of these things, and he's there for her, it's this devotion. And so again, I don't want to call it a childlike love or an admiration, but it's very much a crush-like love at first, for probably the first two-thirds of the book. And I think a lot of the readers of this book, not just the indie comics fans who read about it in Wizard in the 90s, but the nephews and nieces who got this book- there is that relation. I mean, because Phone Bone is the Peter Parker. He is the Tim Drake. He is the Mm -hmm. Dick Grayson. He's the everyman that you're supposed to be seeing this whole story through the eyes. Nine times out of 10, you are following his antics and everything in the perspective of how it relates to him. So they do look like children, even though they are fully realized adults. Another interesting fact about this book is it's a banned book. I don't know if you guys know that because... They don't want children reading this because of the depictions of like violence
2: and drinking and gambling. Wow. Oh Jesus. Yeah, I get it. But it's great. So that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. That growing complexity of the emotions of these characters as they as they go along. How do you Yeah, motion- I think if a parent only picked up volume one, they'd be like, Oh, it's fine. But then if they right.
1: picked up book six and were like, What the fuck are you reading?
0: No, there's there's so much ambiguity. Yeah. They're
2: so one-dimensional also. Like in the beginning, they have like one personality trait. And then as the story unfolds, the personalities of even the Bone Cousins become slightly less cartoonish because the stakes are so much higher.
0: But it's not just them. He does that with everybody. Like Bartleby. It, what a strange character. Like our rat creature, these vicious rat creatures, but he's like a pet dog. But even the other two rat creatures... That are like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Mm. of the story. I would have said R2-D2 and C-3PO, but continue. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Same thing. Like, exactly. And they come back and you're like, are they... Because all the rat creatures, like, they all have to be pure distilled evil, right? Well, I guess not. And especially later on in the story, maybe they're on the good side. Maybe they're not. Like, he does that... Kind of with everybody.
1: When what I wondered, that's the thing I genuinely more curious about. Not did he have this whole plot written out with the epic fantasy thing, but did he have that going from one dimensional character, classic archetypes at the front to just much more nuanced characters by the end? Or was that like an evolution as he was writing the book Mm -hmm. that he just developed more nuance and love for these characters? Because that is probably the starkest contrast in the whole book is like how simple and one dimensional they are at the beginning. And how deep they are by the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: This this was a 10 year endeavor, right? I mean, 2004. Nine, 91 to 04, yeah, almost 15 years. And wow. Yeah. So Jeff Smith is going to be growing substantially as a person as well. So I wonder, you become, you know, you're not really an adult in your early 20s. You're still kind of a kid until you decide to get serious about things, usually around your late 20s. And so you see Jeff Smith in that same trajectory kind of wondering how that played into how he thought about these characters on an emotional level.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Life gets more complex. Story gets more complex. Yeah. Over, I mean, certainly who, over 15 years. Yeah.
1: Well, he's 60 years old. So I just looked it up. He's born in 1960. So he was more of a realized adult. By the time he was writing these, I guess is what I would say if it started in 91. So he would have been in his early 30s. But just to kind of get more into the weeds on this, the other character that honestly, I was surprised with how much depth they decided to give him was Smiley. Like in the opening of this episode, Mm -hmm. I called him the doofus, the slapstick, right? But his love of Bartleby, his willingness, his devotion, right? He goes along with his brothers, but he's trying to thread the needle between the two. He's the mediator. So if even Smiley can
2: become a complex character, like that, Smiley was my absolute favorite, actually, just because of what he became at the end. In the beginning, he's just a tool that Phony uses in order to help with his scams. And he just seems like this unwitting, brainless, compliant person. And then towards the end, he actually has to make decisions. He's overseeing somebody else's life. I thought that he was just fantastic the way he evolved. I mean, he was the most striking change.
1: What didn't you guys like about the book? what could you have done without
2: the lore man that was actually the big thing where i feel like jeff smith really miscalculated was how much he felt he needed to explain the lore to me the lore was everything that we talked about the, the adult emotions these characters having to choose life and death situations to me the lore should always just be in the background supplying those but there was oftentimes times they bring up a character and say oh yes we had this alliance with the dragons we had this we had that and that stuff to me was just so boring And I felt it almost dominated the latter half of Bone. It was those sections where I would really turn off. And I'd only be driven back when you see how all of that emotionally affected the characters and how they related to each other. Part of me wants you've said before, sometimes it reads like a Wikipedia
1: entry. And I think you needed that tapestry and that backdrop for them to be against. But I didn't like the fact that you needed to explain it all. Yes. That's the shit that should happen in the prequels and the postquels and the sequel trilogy. Because I don't need to know all of the backstory. In fact, I I wanted to be left wanting more, not knowing what Grandma Ben and Lucius's deal was, not knowing about who actually killed the parents. I, I feel like he was trying to explain everything away, but maybe that's because he wanted to be done with it at the end. But it did kind of get in the way. But at the same time, it did a lot of world building for me too.
0: Yeah, it didn't bother me. I mean, I was just along for the ride. And it's like, okay, you've gotten me this far. I trust you. You're telling me the story. This is the way you want to tell me the story. I never found myself bored with it, but I wasn't really bothered by it because I didn't think I was necessarily gonna probably read a follow-up. If there were all these follow-ups that were explaining the lore, I probably wasn't gonna go there.
1: The best way I can explain it, Brandon, is The Hobbit, right? The Hobbit mm-hmm. was a great short book. You didn't need to make three fucking movies about God, it. Seriously, know? yes. Absolutely. And that's that's what I felt like hmm. you know, I will stay in the valley in boneville forever. I want more of this sort yeah. of stuff. But there were parts of it that felt like a slog because we were going through the whole mythology of Aethia or whatever. Yeah, right, uh, right, right. And again, I sometimes I'm one of those guys when Lost ended as a TV show, there were some people like they never explained this, this and this. I'm like, yeah, I don't (laughs) want everything. I don't give a shit about the smoke monster. The smoke monster is just scary. So I didn't need to know. I mean, you needed the epic thing with the dragons at the end and bone, but I didn't need to know all of the stuff about that i didn't mind knowing like whatever that main dragon plim or fim or whatever i like that but I, I didn't need all the dragon exposition i didn't need the dragons right. were once here maybe that could be another series about the dragons
2: there's a cutoff point where you have certain things within the mythology that you absolutely need to explain and then there's stuff that you might have pre-written yourself as a writer to make it make sense in your own mind before and then now you feel the need to just dump it all on the page for the readers and that's like there's a whole bunch of extraneous stuff so it's just that jeff smith should have been more selective in how he presented all of that backstory and i think that could have made this a much stronger book by bringing the characters forward more than the actual wikipedia entry for lack of a better word Mm-hmm.
0: Well,
1: a great example of when it's done well is the ghost circles. At first, you don't really find them as a terrifying thing, and they don't fully explain what they are and how they work. But the more the book goes on and the more I think about it, if I were in these people's shoes, that's a terrifying prospect. Oh, yeah. And you don't know any – and that's just one – they didn't explain – how ghosts, it's not chlorians, right? Like I don't need to know how ghost circles work. I just need to know that they suck <laughs> and they're like landmines.
0: Well, they're kind they, of zombie landmines. Like those people, there's people there. They're stuck there. They're stuck there forever. Are they in limbo? Do they know it? Yeah. Some of that stuff was terrifying.
1: And, and not knowing, not right? Knowing. That, and not knowing is what's scarier and what makes it a more effective device. Yeah. And so that's one of those things where, you know, and they do explain a little bit about it, but not too much. And that's what I wanted. And, I feel like the whole mythology of Athea, I think that's what the name of the land was. And a little bit of the mythology of the dragons, because they kept coming back to it over and over again. But the payoff with the dragons, again, maybe if this were an animated series or a movie, the payoff with the dragons would have been greater. But it was just kind of like a three panel thing. Here come all the dragons. Yeah,
2: it was a cool yeah. visual, though. That I mean, just from a visual perspective, it was really amazing. But yeah, and then it was over and you're just like, that was the build up. It was like the end of Game of Thrones, where it's just like, OK, I guess that's all they do. Well, OK, let's let's not sully
1: bone by <laughs> like comparing it to the end of Game of Thrones, because like, you know, I, I tell people all the time things like Bone and Dragon Prince, if you haven't seen on Netflix, if you want to have a good feeling all the way through, unlike Game of Thrones, read, watch Dragon Prince, et cetera. And something I just read as I was doing a little bit of prep for the episode, Netflix has optioned this.
0: Netflix. Oh, I, that's what I was actually wondering about. Like, why haven't we seen some other version of this? Because it would, seems like it would translate really, really well.
1: But I don't want it to. I'm a bit of a snob about this. I'm sure it will. They made a video game of it, but I don't want it. It Just go read the source material because you run the risk of Game of thrones it, if you will.
0: Yeah, I mean, you don't want it unless it's really well done. But if it is, if somebody does it justice, then it's worth doing. And there's always the chance they might do it right.
2: Wait, so when it comes out on Netflix, Roman, are you going to watch it? You know, it's interesting. Had this been
1: 10 years ago before the absolute deluge of content? Maybe. But now, I don't know. I mean, I feel strongly enough about this material that I'm curious. But I'll give you another example. Watchmen. You know, we everyone mm-hmm. everyone's read Watchmen. Everyone has a point of view on Watchmen, and I do too. It should be read in high schools. But I haven't watched the HBO series. Not because I don't think it's great, but it's because- against the backdrop of all these other priorities, right? I'm the guy who will tell everyone you must watch The Wire and The Sopranos and Friday Night Lights and Battlestar Galactica. But in the modern age, where we're just kind of inundated and underwater and everything, that's what sucks about it. And so it becomes more special versus the thing that never got made into a thing. And again, that's a little too cool for school, I know, but I'm nervous. Let's use Game of Thrones as another example, Brandon. HBO had to finish making Game of Thrones because of the money-making machine it was. But had they said let's wait for George R to finish the books. I'm sorry. These next seasons aren't going to come out for a few years because that's the reason the last few seasons sucked. Yeah. Because they were kind of written on ahead. with right. an outline. Yeah. Right, right, right. Now, in, in the case of bone, bone's been written. Bone is done. There's even the sequel pro series about bone and there've been prequels that have been written. So you could do a faithful adaption because it's been put to bed, but There's a million and one reasons why it could be terrible. And I I was looking on YouTube about some of the video game stuff. And again, I'm sure when Jeff Smith optioned it and made the money to make the video game, he thought it was pretty cool. But it doesn't hold up.
0: You asked about stuff that we didn't like about it. I wanted more dragons. Like I was really disappointed that that was all we got. Like Mm -hmm. the introduction early on, the eyes, the device that he uses to introduce the dragons. Great
1: red dragon, yeah. He's it's
0: great. It's a great character. And then he just disappears for three quarters of the book and he's hinted at, and he's hinted at, and he's hinted at, and then all, the influence of the dragons and everybody's fear of the dragons and they're all talked about. And that's great. Like, but you're right. The payoff was so small compared to the weight that they held in the story, both in terms of the unseen weight of everybody being afraid of them for the whole story. And then the influence that they have at the end and how they matter that to have just seen them for a couple of panels at the end, I would have liked more dragons.
1: They were kind of the do ex machina of the end versus I would have liked it to put a completely different twist on the war when the
0: dragons emerge. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: And again, would that have made for more story? Yeah, sure. But it literally was five pages of dragons.
0: Yeah. Everything else I was along for the ride, but I think if there was anything that I was conscious of while I was reading it, that I was unhappy with, it was like, the dragons were compelling characters so the red dragon the sense of humor that he had and the playfulness that he had i wanted more of him in the story that was about the only thing that i was conscious of not being happy with as i was reading it
2: well the dragons you also i just was, they also think they're going to be like distinctive personalities distinctive characters because you meet the red dragon and you're assured right. there are more of them and they have an interesting relationship with the humans it seems a conflict and thorn Dor- as a child yeah, yep. and she seemed to be able to communicate with them. And so at the end, when you just have one red dragon and then a mass of just angry dragons yeah. who are mindless for some reason and their motivations aren't clear, there's no real complexity to them that you expected. You expected there would be some emotional complexity to these creatures. And when they're just this mass of worms trailing up, again, leads to a really, really, really cool visual. Right. But if, if you feel kind of let down. At the end because uh, that's all you really get
0: yeah we've talked about lord of the rings it's like the the dragons are the the army of the dead that just comes in and wins the war for them and goes away like that's all the weight that they have at the end which was a little disappointing
1: someone ask a political question did you guys see any iraq war commentary in the first half of the book i could be like reading between the lines too much
0: i think i didn't have the context for when it was written We had another conversation, Roman, and you mentioned that to me. And I didn't see it at all prior to that.
1: Yeah. And again, the first time I read it, I didn't see it. And we were living in that era, right? The Mm -hmm. 90s. Because I was just reading comic books and superheroes and, oh, the bones, right? So describe what you, like, what made you think that? Where do you see it? The part, the bar bet, where Phone Bone and Smiley are betting with Lucius Mm -hmm. and the false specter of terror of the dragons the unseen other that's out there to get us and the jingoistic nature, like to make some money. And again, I don't know if I'm seeing it to see it now as an adult, knowing that it was written in the 90s and the post-Rumsfeld era where we can look back on it. But it's just the you're either with us or against us kind of nature. These things aren't said, but that was a tone and the lens through which I was reading it this time. There's some terrible shit happening out there There's some real bad shit happening out there, but we're focused on this false narrative, this false villain.
2: Um, That definitely felt political to me, but the reason I didn't really think of it in relation to the Iraq wars, because I'm reading it today, and it feels extremely relevant today for every reason that you just said. The good and evil narrative, the jingoism, and even phony bone when I was just thinking he always wants to crash into the city and take over and make everyone love him, and then they end up hating him. I mean, that that felt like Trump. (laughs) (laughs) So even though this was obviously completed two decades ago, the political commentary felt very, very relevant now. So I think there's something kind of just kind of universal about it. I mean, whether he was actually commenting on specifically the events in America at that time or not, it just kind of cycles back. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean...
1: I don't know when, because it was so sporadically written. I don't know when certain issues were written or when certain volumes were done. I'd be curious to look that up. But I mean, this would have been like the first Iraq war, right? Right, right. It's in 91 and it was done in 04, which you have to assume all like the crazy Lord of the Rings shit at the end is happening during the run up to the Iraq war. And the parallels aren't there as much, right? By that point.
0: Well, I wonder if it is, like Ryan said, I wonder if it's, you know, yes, it's, relevant when he's writing it, but it's relevant to the second Iraq war and it's relevant to Afghanistan and it's relevant to any time anything. that you're Universal seeing- Universal
2: themes, right?
0: Yeah, like capitalism driving that military industrial, like that's just going to happen over and over and over again. So yes, it is, but I don't know that I saw anything that specifically would have anchored it at that stage in history. Are you saying we're doomed to repeat the sins of the past, Brandon? Uh, <laughs> per- perhaps. <laughs> I'm I'm working on that hypothesis. <laughs>
2: Anything else about Bone, guys? No, I just, I'm so glad that you made me read it, Roman, because at 1,000 pages, I probably wouldn't have, even though I knew about it. It would be like like Moby Dick, the book that you keep on your bookshelf in case you might one day want to read it. Speaking of Moby Dick, that's, laugh out loud, that
1: was the gag that I loved. (laughs) The kind of ongoing, like literally there's one time where they're being pursued by the two rat creatures. It's like, quick, start reading Moby Dick, bore them to sleep, and- Every time that shtick plays, I literally laughed out
0: loud. Well, when they go through that place where they're visualizing things, I, I'm forgetting. It's oh yeah, and Phony Bone is Captain Ahab. That. Yeah. Right. They actually turn into the characters. That stuff was hilarious. And it was something that they didn't do too much with. Like when it did pop up, it was really, really funny. And then it disappeared. That was a great gag every time. Yeah. I loved it. Being the, the amateur, the neophyte, the storytelling device, how quickly it moved. Obviously getting into it, you know is it what is it 1300 1400 pages it didn't feel laborious there was never a time where i thought oh god i gotta wade myself through this i really did enjoy it and it actually made me probably more open than i would have otherwise been to reading more of something like this and it was great all the way through i was conscious of being really really visually impressed with what he was doing and that i loved well,
1: it all goes downhill from here, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good to know. Then I won't, you, I won't go any further.
1: Yeah, that's why you should never start with the great. It is kind of funny, Ryan, because, you know, we've read some books that are good for different reasons, but this is just a consistently good book. I, I would say this is in my top 10 greats. So, yeah, I'm glad.
2: I'm glad you guys didn't completely hate it.
0: No, yeah. I, mean, I, re- just, I enjoyed it. Did you guys read Cerebus?
2: Because this is kind of similar, because Cerebus is a barbarian art of arc. Yep. And I, I did not. Funny. And we've talked about it. And because yeah. Dave Sims has been kind of me too. And I think right, so. he was. And actually, he was me too in like 1990. So, I mean, what he said was. That's pretty you know, terrible. Stuff. That's pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. You had to go pretty far. I mean, in the husband
1: couldn't be me tooed in the 90s. So, yeah. so yeah. I. It's kind of one of those Michael Jackson things where I'm like, maybe I should just read it up until that point and then stop. Because Cerebus, if you don't know, is. A much longer spanning epic than bone by a single indie creator black and white quasi cartoony meets real world fantasy book and there's a lot of controversy that i wasn't even aware of until ryan you you told me about on this podcast several episodes ago so i wonder if we should revisit it at some point at least up until that moment
2: may yeah well i wouldn't mind doing it but let me just tell you man there are 12 of cerebus graphic novels and each one is called a phone book like it's literally called a phone book so that's what you'd be getting yourself into. And also, I got to tell you, at least with Bone, the narrative was kind of clear with Cerebus. Towards the end, I have no idea what the, I, what the fuck is <laughs> <was> happening.
0: <laughs> You've read it all?
2: I've read up to book 10. And I, mean, I had been sort of losing the thread since book four or five. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that was going to be my question. Like, if it was that obtuse, did you stick with it? Was the payoff worth it? It doesn't sound like it.
2: No, the narrative got so bogged down for me that... I just lost track of anything, and I just literally couldn't follow along anymore, and I Mm. just got tired of it. I will tell you, I was in my early 20s when that happened, so it could have just been my perspective at the time. You know, I still had, like, teenage ADD. Uh
1: (laughs) Fun fact, when Ryan and I ideated this podcast about a month before the pandemic, we didn't have a name for it until we were locked in our houses. But uh, yeah, I think Required Reading would probably be another name for this show. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I like that. Quarantine Comics,
1: great name, though. It's good. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for reading some more comic books with us.
0: Thank you. I really did enjoy it, and I enjoyed coming on and talking with you guys about it. So thanks for the experience.
1: So, Ryan, I have one last question for you. And what's that question? What are we
2: reading next week? I don't know, but between you and me, I think we will be (laughs) smart enough to somehow figure that out. And edit it hope. back in. <laughs> well, next week, it's going to be a real trip. We're going to be reading Upgrade Soul. It is so good! By Ezra Clayton Daniels. Spoiler alert, guys. Spoiler alert. Yes, to Echo Rubin, it is really freaking good and really freaking unusual. I mean, it's basically about an elderly couple who try to rejuvenate their bodies. What could go wrong? And hijinks ensue massively. It's about the nature what makes of what makes us unique if our experiences were transplanted elsewhere you know would we still have the same wounds the same hangups, same insecurities and it's also a really gripping thriller so i'm really looking forward to discussing this because it's such an unusual book and a real treat to read so far so good so we'll see you next week because because what Ruman?
1: Because we got nothing else to do. We're stuck at home.
2: Because we got nothing else to do except for Ruben. It's raising his daughter. And for me, it's making occasional trips to a Koreatown in New Jersey to pick up spicy rice cakes for my wife.
1: The other unpicked name
2: of our podcast. <laughs> spicy rice cakes for my wife. And that's our
1: show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of books we read at qtdcomics.com. I'm Roman
2: Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.